This is CliffCentral.com. May was Mother's Day, and most of you would have received messages of love, adoration, admiration, and appreciation. Some of you were served breakfast in bed, you were showered with flowers, chocolates, spa treatments, and lunches. However, there are many women out there who have been trying to conceive to no avail. Many conceive, but a few weeks into their pregnancy, Mother Nature throws them a curveball, and as others would say, deals them shitty cards. A friend of mine, Brenda Kambule, posted this message on a Facebook wall. I really have a hard time on Mother's Day to hear Happy Mother's Day and share it with all the phenomenal mothers, but to have lost all three of my little souls before birth. Bittersweet. Now, I don't believe in coincidences. I was halfway through a book when I came across this post. The author had detailed her three miscarriages. The book is titled Girl on Fire, and the author is here with me. Tavania, welcome to The Opinion Booth. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a privilege. What would your response be to Brenda's uh, post? So I think when you're in the thick of things, it's really difficult to have any kind of perspective um, but for me, what I would say is there's always hope and there's a time for everything. So I had three miscarriages that were unexplained medically. And within two years, I conceived and had my miracle son. So I would tell your friend not to give up hope. And stress plays a major factor in fertility. And that was something that I had to learn the hard way. Mother to Tamir. And Mickey, is that how you pronounce his uh, name? Mikai. Mikai. So it's not your typical Mickey no. that you normally see. The, the American way they would no. pronounce it Mickey. So Mikai. Mikai. But then you use the shortened version. Kai. Kai. Yes. Mm-hmm. What does parenthood mean to you? I mean, I can see you beaming just by me mentioning their names. I think, you know, I've had my kids um, many years apart. So when I was pregnant with Tamiya, I was very young. Um, and I've learned how to grow with her. And it was a do-over with Kai because I had become so much more mature. So for me, parenthood is a privilege. Um, my belief is that our kids choose us. And um, I'm quite honored to be raising these two beautiful souls that continue to teach me every day how to be better. You know, your, your, your book, um, I don't want to call it heavy because I don't want to, I don't want to scare people, you know, away from, from reading it because when you, when you read the newspapers, you, you watch the news, there is so much gloom, there is so much negativity, there is so much, um, hatred and darkness, right? Your book is a necessary read. As difficult as it was for me to get through the first few pages, I, first of all, had to read it because I did not want to come here and interview you on something that I was not fully knowledgeable on. Right. So as dark, as heavy as it was, I must say reading the part about your accident that scarred your face and bearing in mind you were just, you had just started your modeling career. So your, your career had not even taken off when the alcoholic, and I take it this is somebody from your family, right? Yes. The alcoholic 
that drove or plunged his car onto you? Did he ever apologize? What, what has become of that relationship, if anything? The relationship has evolved so much. And I think it was largely due to my um, becoming more self-aware and realizing uh, just exactly what alcoholism means. Um, for a long time, I was not prepared to forgive. For a long time, I held on to the title of victim. And I never really understood exactly what um, the disease was about, despite getting all of the cognitive evidence of it. Um, it was only a couple of years ago, actually, where my spiritual journey evolved, that I started realizing that people use different agents to anesthetize themselves. And that was the alcoholic's way of anesthetizing themselves. Um we have recently spoken about it, and I have to say that that person has come a really long way and has evolved. So whatever trauma had led the person to drink in the first place has been resolved, and our relationship is amazing. I'm glad. Mm -hmm. I, I, I say I'm glad because that person could have continued on their journey of self-destruction and destructing and destroying everything from family members and who knows who else would have been a victim. I call it a victim uh, because obviously nobody asks to be hit. Yes. Nobody asks to be involved in a car accident that could have been avoided had mm -hmm. that person made the wise decision to either sit and drink at home mm -hmm. or if they knew that they were intoxicated to be wise enough and responsible enough to call a meter taxi to drive them around. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that he's, he's, he's changed his way. And I'm only just assuming when I say he, I mean, you, you did not mention, you were not specific in the book as to whether we were, you were, you were referring to a he or she, but that's not mm -hmm. important. It's not, yeah. What's important is that I'm, 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 I'm glad something positive came out of that experience, despite the fact that you now have a scar that you have to face every day in the mirror. But I do know after reading your book that you're not about that. I'm not, I'm absolutely not about that. And I realized that my role was never to be in modeling because I, my intention to start modeling was to try and develop some kind of self-esteem, which was missing for the entire duration of my life. But I found it in other ways, in, in better ways, you know, for me. Um, and in so far as the disease is concerned, um, this situation of mine is not in isolation because there are countless families that endure the same thing. Um, maybe not to the degree of having had this sort of accident, but the fact remains is we are not talking about the issues. And the issue is not the alcoholism or the drug addiction. The issue is what is the pain that's being suppressed that we are too afraid to speak about? That is the bigger picture. And the alcoholic in my life um, ended up having really open, honest conversations with me um, to get to the root of what led the person to drink as opposed to the drink itself. Hmm. Sure. So a, a, a lot, a lot was revealed. Yes. I mean, as, as, as you're saying that the, the, the alcohol abuse was to numb a pain or to try, um, and avoid the issues 
that were so deeply embedded. And this person was hoping that with time, with the intoxication levels or the numbing of that pain that that person experienced, wishing and hoping that it will go away tomorrow when they wake up. Only for them to start all over again Absolutely. with the drinking, yes. with the possibility of destroying more lives. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad something positive came out of that. One other thing that I just need to get out of the way, which for me is I consider an elephant in the room or an elephant in the studio as we are. On your way home from the hospital after the accident, your dad said to you, don't speak about this accident again. Don't mention it. I thought this was heartless. It was very difficult for me to continue reading because I just imagined you as a young woman in the car with a parent, somebody that you loved, and you're driving home and you're still in pain. Yes, you would have had pain meds, but still you, 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 I'm sure you were still dealing with what had transpired and now you're in the car with your dad and he's telling you not to mention the accident again as if to uh, pretend as though it never happened. I was baffled by how you continued to love and care for him. Even on his deathbed, your dad died of lung cancer. Mm -hmm. You are so forgiving. Where, Where does that come from, given what you've been through? You know, I have to say... There was a lot of resentment that I carried, but it's the nature of the beast. And I'm going to say this contentiously, that predominantly in the Indian community, that is how we've been raised to live, where we don't speak about it. We don't air our dirty laundry for the world to judge. And, you know, the I don't think, and I know now, retrospectively, that it was not from a place of malice. It was definitely not about dismissing my pain at all, even though for a very long time I resented him. But I realized that he was just acting in accordance with what he knew. So when we know better, we do better. Simple as that. Simple as that. And now, and then you, 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 you end up falling pregnant as a result of a rape. Yes. Have you ever considered pressing charges? Or did you ever consider present charges at the time? Not even once. Why not? Shame. Shame and guilt. Um, as I describe in the book, I uh, had led him or invited him into the home. Um, I had known this person. We had interacted. We've even gone so far as to flirt before. So for a long time, um, I carried the guilt and shame. And I was too afraid. I was too afraid to, you know, let it be known in the public because judgment is rife. Um, And it was something that I didn't want to carry. So I suppressed it. I suppressed it and I dealt with the horror of it on my own. Is is that, is that was Alan, right? Do you know if he's still alive? He is still alive. He's moved on with his life as if nothing ever occurred. He's married. Yes. With kids. With kids. Yes. And of course, I, I, I assume the wife doesn't know. I'm not sure if she knows. Um, it was scandalous at the time because there was rumors spreading, um, but a very distorted message at the time when we were in university. So I don't really know 
what the exact story was. And a lot of people did believe that he just got lucky. Um, a few of my close friends that I had confided in and told the truth to, you know, were skeptical because here's a good looking guy. Um, you know, we had, I had openly flirted with him and, you know, it seemed like I was the one that was making up stories. So I didn't want to necessarily go about proving the truth and the truth, you know, I wouldn't say it's inconsequential to me right now about, you know, whether he admits it to himself. It is about my own process. And I was able to let that go, forgive myself and release it and release him. I don't, my plan is not to put a burden on you or to give you any ideas. But I often ask myself and and, and the narrative and the conversations um, when rape or the Me Too campaign um, is is trending or we having those conversations. You, It's easy for me to sit here and say to you, but if you don't repeat him, he might do it again. It's easier said than done, right? Um, do, do you sometimes think to yourself, I should have or I can still report him with the hopes that he's going to learn a lesson so that he's he doesn't get big-headed enough to think that I got away with it the first time. I might just do it again because I know I'm going to get away with it. Do you do you sometimes feel a bit of responsibility to report him so that hopefully he's put behind bars and he, there's no opportunity for him to hurt another girl or woman again? The short answer is no. Because from an evidence perspective, there is none. So it's his word against mine. Um, there are obviously records from the gynecologist that I had seen at the time, but there was no examination done because he was the father of a friend of mine. So I don't necessarily want to open up the can of worms. I included it in my book because owning the truth was so big for me. I needed to speak about it in the hope that it gives other women permission to do the same. So it's not necessarily about proving a point to him or teaching him the lesson. The bigger lesson is owning my truth. And that was the most important thing for me. I believe that justice will prevail in all aspects. And karma. And karma does exist. So, you know, it's it's cyclical. Um, and it's not my job to teach the lesson. I don't want to take on that energy. I'd much rather focus on being better, doing better and creating an awareness, starting the conversations that really matter and getting girls to speak about it unashamedly as opposed to worrying about him. So now Eric, Tamiya's father, died last year. Yes. You wrote, in death there is only love. Death is sobering. It brings you to your knees. Pun intended? Did alcohol lead to his death? I don't want to say with conviction, but I will say that it was an absolute contributor because he's had so many accidents um, where people have been killed, where he was almost paralyzed. Um, really, really serious accidents that would have had a detrimental effect, um, you know, on his body. It definitely did. Um, and he eventually had a stroke, but I don't know what contributed to that. So I think it's part and parcel. My word. So I th- he, he, he destroyed himself. He did. Tragically. 
and and, and unfortunately it left uh, a, a a beautiful girl without a biological father she's you know the unfortunate thing is she's never really had a relationship with him um i we were married for 3 months and when i had tamia we were already separated and on our way to being divorced so his participation in her life was so erratic so she's never really had that father figure um a few years ago he had stopped drinking for a while and he did want to forge a relationship with her which i gave him the opportunity to unfortunately he messed it up and to me i then had to be removed from his care and then brought back to me so it's been really traumatic for her but you know on the flip side um there was a lot of love from me to him when he died and from Tamia to him when he died because i realized that you know this was just a very sad and broken man and the only way that he could get comfort was through alcohol which as i said before is an anesthetizing agent that people use um because you know the enormity of dealing with emotional stuff is way too big um and people are just afraid So you know I had absolute pity for his life of unfulfilled yearnings he had great ambition he was very very talented in a lot of ways but you know it, it was just so difficult for him to execute that hmm. and then after your second miscarriage you said to yourself that or or you wrote that getting pregnant again became an obsession i must confess that after reading that the first thing that came to mind was this is self-inflicted torture yes why did you do that to yourself i think it became an obsession because i was at a stage where i thought i'm ready to have a baby and it was just not happening and there was a whole lot of repressed sorrow and stuff that i hadn't dealt with from the rape and having had that abortion um that came into play and i was basically flogging myself for the fact that i wasn't able to conceive um it was torturing myself absolutely and i i don't even have an answer for it because i mean it's it's easy for me to say you 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 had tamia and it's easy for me to say that as if uh, tamia was should have been your consolation prize right yeah um so a lot of people would think that but it wasn't because at the stage i thought you know i never really enjoyed her because you know she was the most beautiful baby but i was a 21 year old woman um moving from province to province um coming back to KZN as a single mom and having just lost my father it was a series of events that was so traumatic for me that i never really appreciated motherhood i never i was a possess parent and i'm not even ashamed to say it i was terrible so by the time i reached uh, 2930 i was a lot more mature i had you know some life experience i had some learnings and i really thought i'm going to get a chance to do it over with a second child that would have been sort of like the first pregnancy for me hmm. 
After the birth of Mikai, my marriage began to to disintegrate. But there were certain values that I had that Gary didn't agree with. We disagreed with the way in which we wanted to raise kids. I found this to be profound, especially when you consider that a lot of couples stay in miserable and dead marriages for the sake of the kids and would disregard the question, how do you raise happy, balanced kids if the parents are unhappy? How do you give what you don't have? I am so deeply passionate about this conversation and this topic because I've seen it happen extensively with my own immediate circle where people have chosen to remain in miserable marriages using their children as pawns. And, you know, I I just don't subscribe to that belief. Um, for a long time, I did stay with my second husband with that same mentality until death became an option for me and I realized something had to give. So what I've learned is that divorce isn't the issue. It is the conflict that arises as a result of the divorce. So children don't need us to be superheroes. They're not looking for that. And people tend to use them as scapegoats to avoid the truth. And I'm not about that. So I, my personal belief is I need to be happy, content, at peace, well-adjusted in order to be the best parent that I can be for my kids. More than anything, I wanted Tamiya to look back and think, is this what marriage is supposed to be? Are you meant to sacrifice yourself? And the answer was absolutely not. And I needed to be the example for her. So I've always said children don't learn what we tell them. They learn what they live. And what they see. And what they see. Wouldn't a divorce be preventable or avoided if we took the time to know our partners before getting married? Understanding their belief systems and values and checking to see if they aligned to ours. In your case, it's obvious you wouldn't have married Gary had you known beforehand that he had a different way of disciplining a child, ultimately that got in the way of parenting and your marriage? I think, you know, the disciplining of the child was just one of many, many aspects. And I would take it a step further to say, don't get married until you know for sure who you are. Because it's not even about the other person. It is about who I was being in the marriage. So I was completely conflicted. I was not aligned to who I really am. So I'm someone that is extremely romantic. I am very demonstrative. And I'm someone who puts the marriage ahead of the role as parents. So in other words, after becoming a mother, I don't define myself solely on the basis of being a mother and then abdicate my role as a woman. Whereas with him, he was all about the domesticity and our relationship as husband and wife could have crumbled. But I continued and I knew that from the beginning. But I thought, okay, I'm going to change him. We're going to adapt. It's not a big thing. And immediately I was not in alignment with myself. So I would say the most important thing is knowing who you are and what you're prepared to do, who you're prepared to be in a relationship so that you're not in sacrifice You've got to be in service of the relationship. And I'm not sure if that makes sense. But it makes sense. Yeah. 
it makes sense because the next thing that that actually a, a, a wow moment for me or something that got me thinking was you saying while both my children were a priority to me, I didn't want my marriage to be defined by parenthood only. I wanted our relationship to be that of a woman and a man first and parents second. So, you know, I think as women, we have mommy guilt. It is part and parcel of when you become a mom. It rides shotgun with us everywhere that we go. And, you know, I had to really unlearn a lot of those conditioned ways of thinking. So for me, it was um, retaining my identity when being a mother um, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say secondary, but I'm a woman first and I also happen to be a mom. And I think, you know, this is where we lose focus as women is because we become mums and then we forget about the relationship with our partners and vice versa. And that is how marriages disintegrate. And a lot of women, a lot of moms neglect themselves. They forget to look after number one. They just want to focus on the kids and making sure that the husband's shirt is ironed or that he gets his hot meal when he gets back from work. But they neglect themselves. But we've been fed the lie because a so-called good wife, and again, especially in in the Indian community, to be considered to be marriage material, you've got to have that element of domesticity. So you've got to be an exceptional cook and you've got to be a great parent and you've got to raise kids a certain way. Um, and for me, that just, it doesn't sit well. So those antiquated ways of thinking don't sit well for me. I don't like the defined roles and I don't want my identity to be wrapped around the roles that I play. I want to be seen for who I am and what I bring to the equation and then have all of those other things that I do as a secondary thing. I've heard people say that a divorce is the most draining process ever. Did your first divorce prepare you for the second, or was it the same or even worse of an experience? It did not prepare me because my divorce with Tamia's dad, was. it was really... I don't want to say effortless. It was quite traumatic. I was very young, but there was very little resistance from him. So he didn't. I had full custody at the time, which is not normal, um, you know, with our legal act now. Um, I had full custody of Tamiya. The divorce was done and dusted within a few months. There were no assets as such to divide. And there was no real resistance from him because, you know, he was just interested in doing his own thing. The second time round, I'll the struggle that I found was not necessarily the logistics of it. It was getting clear in my mind what it is that I'm doing again, because the part that really broke me the most wasn't the fact that I'm getting a divorce again. It was what am I doing to my children? And that came from all of the whisperings from people close to me to say, but this man is not really a bad person. He doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't hit you. He's not cheating. So, you know, those are the only requirements for divorce, apparently. Um, and I had to get clear in my mind what it is that I'm doing because this was the only father figure that to me I knew. So it was really traumatic for me to make the decision. And it took one full year before I finally said, my life is actually worth something and I don't need permission to do this. I respect you for that. 
Thank you. I have so much respect for you to have been able to do that because I wouldn't have imagined that it was an easy decision. No, it wasn't. Divorce is never an easy decision. No. I think even I've seen women even in abused marriages, and I mean I'm talking physical abuse where the woman – you, you can see that the next time it happens, she's going to leave the house in a coffin. Yes. Divorce is still difficult, a process. Yeah. Even for that woman, you want to encourage her to leave the marriage. But you know that the the just the thought of going through the entire process of a divorce, you know how much it is going to deplete her energies. I have a friend who got divorced and the the, the divorce was... It, it it took so much out of her. I actually don't even know how she survived it. Some say a divorce will reveal your partner's too, true character. Absolutely. Do you agree? I agree a thousand percent. Because, you know, it it conflict is such a thing. And I think when you're getting into a relationship, you should ideally be in a position of conflict in order to gauge the true nature of someone, because as you say, it gets revealed in that way. And it brings out such ugliness because there are egos at play, because people want to become self-righteous. They want to be right. It becomes a competition about who's going to win. And, you know, people lose sight of the bigger picture, especially where kids are involved. And it is extremely traumatic because if there's an aggrieved party, so if the divorce is not... um in a in mutual agreement, then, you know, somebody's going to be scorned and would want to do everything in their power to get back at you. And it becomes unbearable. It's really on the top five things of most traumatic events that you could occur. And you're wanting, you, you're also getting some parents who are wanting to display themselves as the better parent of the oh, two, yeah. battle of the egos. Yeah, absolutely. And you completely lose track of, the, the kids in this event, you know, it becomes so much about I'm going to prove a point to you. I'm going to show you exactly what you've done. Um, I'm going to make your life a living hell in order for you to, you know, assess the pain that you've inflicted on me. And kids get thrown under the bus. The men are trash hashtag was created with men like Mason in mind. And your so-called best friend, Sue, is equally trashy. Same WhatsApp group. Match made in hell. What has become of them in their marriage? They're divorced. They're divorced. They're divorced. I can't say I'm surprised. <laughs> Having said that, this helped to unearth something life-changing. You said, love and kindness changed me. From actively wanting to die, I now willingly choose to live. What I deemed to be betrayal by Mason and Sue turned out to be the greatest gift I have ever received. It was the rock bottom I needed to hit in order to rebuild my life. Now, I'm deeply grateful for that experience, even though it was hideous to endure at the time. You're a very graceful lady. Yes. <laughs> and no. Um, I think I reacted at the time. Um but it was the beginning of the end. I had already had a ton of experiences that made me struggle with depression through the years. And that for me was the final straw. Um, I have written in my book and I have acknowledged in my book 
a company called the Saw Institute. And it is through two very special men that have become family to me that I am literally alive today. There's no way that I would not have executed the suicide that I was planning had it not been for these two men. And they're the manifestation of love and kindness. So I learned through a very intensive workshop that they run um, exactly why I invited that episode into my life. So I created that reality of Mason and Sue um, because I needed to learn exactly what my worth was, exactly how I was operating and the people that I chose to have in my life that reinforced that I'm the so-called victim. So what better way to be a victim than the cliche of having my best friend sleep with the man that I was seeing? So it was an absolute act of betrayal in the one sense because I mourned her more than him because it was a sisterhood, it was a sanctity for a decade, if not longer. But I found myself in the midst of that and that is a gift that I can't take away from that experience. You know, if you were sitting next to me when I was reading that part, I would have pinched your thigh. <laughs> because from the little that you mentioned of her, a part of me thought surely there would have been signs. I mean, you were best friends for 10 years, right? Yeah, over 10 years. Over 10 years. I, I thought to myself, I'm finding it hard to believe that she did not in those 10 years show you any signs that she was going to do that to you. No, nothing. She may have. I think we choose to see what we want to see. And in hindsight, there were a lot of things that didn't add up in terms of her emulating a lot of my behavior. But again, I don't want this to become a thing about bashing her because I feel like I have a lot of pity for her. I have a lot of compassion for her now because you have to be so lost in yourself to do that to someone that's your best friend. You have to be somebody that is really um, out of alignment with who you are to ever consider that to be okay with somebody that you know so intimately. As they say, hurt people, hurt people. Absolutely hurt people, hurt people. Absolutely. You you mentioned that there were signs and maybe that there, there, there was that voice within you or woman instincts like we all have. What are some of the things that she used to do that were the warning signs from the universe that you chose to ignore? Well, you know, I have to say that what's become real for me is that you can't be friends with someone who wants your life. True. So as a silly example, if I had to cut my hair a certain way, she would do the same. Um, I was studying at the time and then she chose to study as well. I was getting a divorce and she was thinking about getting a divorce <laughs> as well. So I don't mean to laugh because it's not funny. No, it's, I don't know, but she got it, a divorce because you got a divorce. I don't know if she got a divorce prior to her relationship with Mason or I don't know because all of the deed, there was a whole lot of lies that got unearthed after that. And I'm not sure what's real and what's, not real anymore. But again, you know, as I say, there was a stage where I believed that maybe I was um, the conduit for her to meet him in that way. 
And, uh, you know, that's really higher level thought processes, but that's, I believe it fully that all of us had to have that experience. And maybe for her, she needed to, you know, have that experience for herself and come to self-actualization for herself, you know, so whatever it is, I'm completely at peace with it now. Weren't you flattered that she was emulating or copying a lot of the things that you do? I mean, after all, they say imitation is the, you know, the best form of flattery. In your mind, what is the what is the thin line between somebody imitating you because they're flattered uh, by the way you look when you have a diff- a new hairstyle, or when they decide to go and uh, study exactly the same degree or the same course as you're studying? What is that fine line between admiration and psychorish behavior? Yeah, I, there's a definite fine line, and I've actually been on the receiving end of that recently, but. I wouldn't necessarily call it flattering. I would just, it, it, it saddens me because, you know, my whole idea about speaking about who I am is because I'm aware of who I am and I don't need to emulate anybody else. And when I see women imitating or copying or, you know, passing things off as their own, it's, it saddens me because it's, you've got to be so lost in yourself. Um, to not know who you are. That's, that's the bottom line. I've already alluded to the fact that your, your, your book is, um, it's, you, 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 it's the kind of book you read with a box of, uh, you know, twin savers next to you, you know, a box of tissues and a, and a, maybe a glass of wine or something, you know, <laughs> just to, just to lighten things up. And I mean, talking about lightening things up, you, you've got a wicked sense of humor. Which is one of the reasons why I was able to read the book because I mean, you would be talking, for example, about you uh, going through a stage at some point where you felt that you were fat. Mm-hmm. And you did not like what you were seeing in the mirror and you hated climbing on the scale because mm-hmm. then it would make you depressed. Mm-hmm. And then you became a comfort eater mm-hmm. and you say, I'd reach out for something sugary to fall into a coma induced state because let's face it, cake never puts up a fight. It sits there looking delicious and begs to be eaten. How did you, how did you find that? Humorous, uh, Tivania with a sense of humor amidst all of that negativity and adversity that you were, that you were faced with. I think it just speaks about, uh, you know, my personality that's multifaceted, but on a simplistic level, I actually do have a relationship with cake. I do to this day. It, I don't, hold a reverent. <laughs> We do. For me, it's chocolate more than cake. It, well, it's both. It's both in equal measure. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. So, th- so you still, you still, you still reach out for your for your slice, or even you know, two, all two, the or time. two, or, or three, three, you know, of death, <laughs> death by death by chocolate. All the time. Life is too short. I, I I agree. I don't believe in. So I don't have the personality for uh, middle ground. I'm really about excess. So if I'm enjoying something, I will enjoy it to the max. Um, and I've learned to feel less guilty about it. So these kind of indulgences and pleasure, I take great pride in. I'm not ashamed of it. So I don't even give a toss about my size anymore. I'm so happy to eat the cake. 
you know, if I, if, 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 if it weren't for the, if you had given me a hard copy, because you've just given me a hard copy of your book now, remember you had sent mm-hmm. me the PDF, co- uh, PDF copy, uh, copy, and the best that I could do was to highlight using a, a cursor, a mouse, mm-hmm. whatever. I, I mean, you should, if, had you given me a physical copy, a hard copy, you should have, it, it, the book would have been completely, yellow. <laughs> I use a yellow highlighter as my favorite color for some strange reason. But if you were to look at my PDF copy, Almost the entire book is highlighted yellow <laughs> because you are full of wisdom. I mean, you, you, you are so young. I mean, you, I, I think, you know, you're an old soul. I am because there were so many paragraphs, sentences and quotes, which I don't even know if you were aware that you were quoting something profound. Something that would give a reader an aha moment, things that we converse about on a day to day basis, but the way you put your words together, your book is going to do exceptionally well. And I'm not just saying that because you're sitting opposite me. I want to read this paragraph for people to understand the kind of writer that you are, the poetic, I call you a po- poetic. Writer that you are because you, you, your words are rich. Thank you. Look at you, look at you smiling. Now. I love that. She's, 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 she's blushing. Uh-huh. No, <laughs> cheeks it's... are turning red. But I, I, I enjoyed your book. Thank I you. I thoroughly enjoyed your book. This paragraph, a lot of people are going to relate and are going to absolutely love this and they would probably press, you know, rewind as you mm-hmm. call it. Mm-hmm. When you decide to live authentically, the people that are meant to be in your life will appear. This can often mean having to say goodbye to the old life and the people who fit into that old model that never suited you. This is not a reason to be sad. Each phase of your life determines a regrowth. Out with the old, in with the new. Those who are meant to stay will. Simple as that. I have to stress again, you know, the Soul Institute has been the most life-changing event or the workshop, sorry, that I attended. Um, it changed my life completely because I was the girl that never fitted in. Nobody liked me. I was not popular. I was bullied incessantly for the way that I looked. I was ashamed. I was judged. I was laughed at. I was ridiculed. For years. And here I walk into this organization with people that are like-minded, that love me for who I am. So if I had to go to any one of them to say, I've murdered somebody, the question would be, okay, so where do we hide the body? Not really, because they don't advocate murder, but, Mm. you know, that's the gist of it. You have people that you know, accept you and welcome you and embrace and applaud you and are there as not only your greatest fan, but also a critic. So if I'm not in alignment, if I am messing up in a certain way, people love me enough to call me out on it and to say, what's up with you? You know, get back on track. And I absolutely appreciate that because those kind of relationships are invaluable. So 
there were lots of people that I had lost along the way, lots of friendships that had ended after my second divorce, lots of people that were ashamed of me for being a twice divorced woman. And I, for a long time, held on to the relationships that ended, thinking I'm going to be alone until I met this group of people that have become my tribe, my people, um, you know, constantly provoking me to be better than I was the day before. Um, it's a, a space where you get to be who you really are. You're valued. And, you know, that for me in, at this stage in my life is the most important thing. And I'm I'm so lucky. You, 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 I think the first, the first chapter of your book, I think it spoke to me. There are two things that stood out. One was that you were teased or you were considered not so beautiful because of your dark complexion and because you are tall and you were so thin and they called you golf sticks. So I was teased golf sticks, but the name that I was called for many years, which to me actually teases me about to this day, but which is really hard still, is licorice. So they used to call me licorice and pink panther. So every time I would walk by, the boys would start humming the pink panther song to the point where I don't watch Pink Panther. I can't bring myself to watch Pink Panther. But it still conjures up, even though I've changed and I've evolved so much over the years, you know, those things are just loaded with emotion for me. Um, and those are the kinds of names that I was teased incessantly for years and years during the most important formative years of my life. And look how you turned out. If it's well. any consolation, <laughs> look at me. As dark as I am, I was considered... Maybe some people still consider me ugly, but um, it's 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 okay. Um, I've dealt with my demons, <laughs> but um, yeah, as 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 dark as I am, and you know, of course, about this whole uh, yellow bone phenomenon. My nickname was Mosquito. Oh my! Because God. I was also, you know, I, uh, I'm st- I still am tall, mm-hmm. but I was super skinny, mm-hmm. and the kids used to tease me and call me Mosquito. So I'm just mentioning this for you to know. Uh, that you and I are in the same WhatsApp group in as far as that was concerned. And I like it when you said that uh, teenage high school teenage girls They're are the a different worst kind, kind of, of hell. hell. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm actually living that with my daughter now because she is also quite tall. She's also quite thin. She's a lot more fair skinned than I was at her age. Um, I think she's really beautiful. A lot of people think she's really beautiful, but girls can be nasty. And I'm reliving that, but I get to show her a different way. So she's coming out unscathed as opposed to me that was, you know, wanting to hide in a corner. So I think generationally, you're always going to find that kind of thing. But again, it boils down to you know, our perception of beauty and how we raise our kids and what importance do we place on looks? What importance do we place on personality or, you know, wanting our children to grow up being kind as opposed to growing up to be doctors, lawyers, accountants, whatever. Mm. So again, emphasis there. Yeah. Complete the sentence for me. What I know for sure is... What I know for sure is nothing lasts forever. And what you think is crisis 
today can be something beautiful tomorrow. Love that. I've reiterated that I don't believe in coincidences. I strongly believe the universe conspired for me to read your book at this particular point in my life. Your book spoke to my soul. It triggered many questions and put a lot into perspective. You bared your soul and you put yourself out there. But you have no idea how impactful your words are. I think you might have an idea. I'm learning. Confronting your truth set you free and it saved me. What I know for sure is that your book is going to enlighten and enrich millions of women. Thank you so much for spending time with me on the Opinion Booth, Tamir. That's beautiful. Tivania. Tamia you. is your daughter. <laughs> you see, um, I, 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 I love your daughter because I, I, I was stalking you on, 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 on Facebook and I was looking at this gorgeous girl of yours. And that's why I've, I think, I don't know how many times I've mentioned her name, but uh-huh. uh, I think your, your boy is not going to be impressed with the fact that his name is probably mentioned twice. <laughs> and your daughter Tamia has mentioned like, I don't know how many times. Oh. Tivania Muli. You are an incredible woman, an exceptional woman. Thank you. Thank you so much for opening up. I'm honored. Thank you very much. Your words mean a lot to me. You have no idea. My humble opinion, after all, this is the opinion booth. There is a lesson in every experience, whether you deem it to be negative or positive. The universe will keep throwing the same curve ball until you open your eyes, ears and mind to whatever it is you need to learn. You are where you are supposed to be. Trust the universe's timing and as difficult as it is to accept, understand that Mother Nature knows best. Aspire to inspire before you expire. This is cliffcentral.com.